Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, and give you real-time updates from the field. Our goal is to remain, remain a brand agnostic podcast that discusses relevant and timely agronomy while bringing you insights from industry professionals. To connect with us, shoot us an email at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. Good morning, Andrew. How are you doing, Sean? Good. Good. Excited to uh, continue this week with a special guest. Why don't you go ahead and introduce him? Yeah, so I'm excited to have on the uh, the master of all things soybeans, uh, Sean Conley from the University of Wisconsin. So uh, looking forward to learning more about uh, the high yield management and soybeans. Good morning, Sean. How are you? Great. Good morning, Sean and Andrew. I'm ha- happy to be here, and I don't know if I'd really classify myself as any type of soybean guru, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll answer what I know, and if I don't know, I'll let you all know that too. Well, give us um, give us your background. Um, tell us tell us how you ended up in the role you're in, and, and uh, maybe a little bit about your passion for soybeans. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, believe it or not, I'm from Wisconsin. I grew up in a dairy farm. Who would ever guess that one? Um, <laughs> I milked cows till I was 18 years old and <clears throat> moved to and went to UW-Madison. Started out as a uh, vet school, but I did not study very much my freshman year. <laughs> so those, straight, uh, those straight C's would not have gotten me into vet school that I got. <laughs> so then I uh, kind of floated around, took a semester off, and it was a, a sales internship. And I quickly learned I do not want to be a salesman. Or a salesperson, so that brought me back in into agronomy and into science. So that's kind of how I, you know, got into uh, agronomy. And then I started at the University of Missouri for three years. I went to Purdue for three years, and then 15 years ago, I came back to UW Madison, and I've been here since. Awesome. Nice. So you get your uh, graduate degree in, at Purdue? No, I'm, I, my running joke is I should have been a corn breeder. I'm so inbred. I get all my degrees here. <laughs> Edison, so. Hey, you and me, that's that's my exact joke. I got all my degrees at Iowa State, too, and that's the first thing I tell people. I'm super inbred. What's the what's the Tommy Boy line? Lots, lots of people go to school for seven years, right? Yeah, yeah they're called doctors. Yeah, they're called doctors. Um, yeah, I, I went to my 10-year high school graduation and never had a job. And so all my friends at high school at 10-year were like, are you still in school? Yes, yes, I am. No, I, I understand yeah, don't call it a comeback. Um, we we start, uh, Sean, we start our shows when we have a, a guest. Um, and before we talk about uh, kind of your area of expertise with soybeans, um, share with us, what are you excited about in, in agriculture right now? So what I'm really passionate about right now is taking a big data approach to be able to answer applied questions to farmers Hmm. Um, we're all generating data industry academia uh, but we're really trying to be able to to develop precision placement of inputs and we just don't have the capacity industry or academia to put out thousands of thousands of plots over every soil condition every environmental condition So utilizing more of an artificial intelligence, um, machine learning approaches, we're really doing some cool things and be able to develop tools that we can help farmers make make management decisions and at least test the tool and look for maximum profit or maximum uh, yield, whatever they're looking for. So that's what my program is really moving into right now. Obviously, we're still doing the agronomy because you still need to ground truth it. but this methodology allows me then to run millions of scenarios, test interactions, and then I take these interactions and I actually put them back out in the field to make sure the algorithms work. So that's pretty cool. I've, that's what I'm really passionate about doing right now. Are, are you collecting then, do you have growers participating in kind of, uh, I guess, like a co-op mentality of of handing over their data and saying you can use this data set to to feed your algorithm and doing that across broad acres sure so i'll kind of give you the how i got here you know, I'll, I'll, real quickly if you guys don't mind yeah so, no, i uh, love it so 
about eight years ago, we got funding through the North Central Soybean Research Program uh, to do what we called at that point benchmarking. Mm-hmm. So we had this tool that we were able to go out and collect survey data from farmers. So over that three-year time frame, we collected survey data uh, from over 8,000 farm fields and over 600,000 acres of, of data. From then, we kind of started building our algorithms. And then what we did from there is then we ran scenarios. And then we took these scenarios and did large on-farm plots to test these scenarios across the North Central region, which is basically from North Dakota to Pennsylvania, from Michigan to Kansas. If you get across. So it's roughly 85% of all U.S. soybean production is in this area. And we went on farm and we asked the farmers to do what they normally did. And then we gave them an improved scenario that they tested in large strips on their farm. And over those three years, we average roughly anywhere from a three and a half to a six bushel yield increase and wow. average anywhere from $35 to $50 per acre profit from implementing our improved system over what they were typically doing on that farm, which was really cool. Farmers really dug that. Yeah. Now what we're doing is the next step, <clears throat> again, continued funding through the North Central Soybean Research Program, so I want to give them credit for funding this work, is Absolutely. now we're doing this data-driven project, but we're going out, uh, we're collecting the survey data, but it's now in an app now, so it's super easy. Farmers can either upload average yield, or um, we can now, we built a, an R program that we can go and clean their yield monitor data really quick so we can batch clean yield monitor data. So, so we improved on that process. And then we're scouting. So in Wisconsin alone, we're scouting over 2,500 acres. We're implementing into this other app that we built. So that we're putting all these layers in, you know, soils data, environmental data, um, satellite data. So then we're just building this tool, like you had indicated earlier, that we're able to, again, hopefully once we build this, then farmers can run uh, these scenarios or counterfactuals, if you will, drop a pin in their field. They put in what uh, management uh, practices they're willing to change, because you know maybe they have they have one planter, so they're not going to change row spacing, but they're willing to variable rate seed or they're willing to uh, use a foliar fungicide, whatever. They put what they're willing to change, run the scenarios, and then it gives them these options to try on the farm. So that's what we're working on building now. So that's what's got me super pumped and super excited yeah i'm like yeah I'm, I'm super excited to hear that i think it's interesting to think about kind of the you know the 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 data tech journey you know and in the beginning everyone's like no that that belongs to me i you know that's my data and you, you kind of sit and think man if we would collectively utilize that data how powerful we could learn and and really it's it's probably not tremendously valuable on its own it's tremendously valuable when it's able to be used in in a large database so super uh super cool i'm sure we're going to learn more about that as we go andrew start start a discussion if you would um kind of into this journey of high yield management yeah so i'm excited to have this discussion because you know sean i I think uh you know, we, we've kind of nailed down some of the things that, that really impact yield when it comes to corn. You know, uh, a good reference would be, you know, Fred Bilo's Seven Wonders of, of the Corn Yield, right? So we, we get a lot of discussion about that, how to increase corn yields, what, what really matters when it comes to corn yields. But I, I feel like as we advance in technology, I, I think there needs to be more, uh, more of this thought process put towards soybeans, right? Because we, we continuously grow them. You know, there's kind of the running joke that, yeah, we, we plant soybeans just because we, we got to, we got to rotate, you know, whatever whatever the situation may be. But, you know, soybeans are something that's good, that we, we, we need and we're going to continuously plant. So I think the more we talk about innovation and, and new methodologies and new, new management tactics, the, the better off we'll be long term as, as we continue to increase yields and our yield potentials go up. So, you know, I, I always like to start the beginning with a little bit of nerdy information. And I, I remember my one of my graduate classes, my physiology class, had a professor that really, really dug deep into the, you know, the C3 versus a C4 plant and, and soybeans versus corn. And so just just some nerdy things that always stuck out to me were a hundred, just to put it in perspective for growers, uh, a soybean, a soybean seed, one, one gram of soybean seed is, is 1.6 times more expensive to make than a gram of corn seed. So you look at, you know, the, uh, the CO2 in glucose, glucose made from the, the photosynthetic process, 
And, and so a gram, a gram of soybean seed is 1.6 more times expensive than a gram of corn seed. That, that, that really tells you a lot about the efficiencies and the production of, of a soybean seed, you know, the protein content within that seed compared to a corn kernel. And, and on top of that, one a thing that really stuck out to me is is when you when you look at the nitrogen needs of a soybean plant in the in the seed. So 100 bushel soybean, the seed plus the stover needs around 500 pounds of nitrogen. That is that is you know when we start talking corn, you're usually at a one to one ratio. You know maybe 0.8 to to one. So 500 pounds of of nitrogen for 100 bushel soybeans. That that really puts it in perspective. So, so I'm, I'm super excited to get your input on this, Sean, because, you know, thinking about the, the efficiency in, or maybe lack of efficiency, depending on how you want to put it, in a soybean plant, I'm, I'm excited to talk and, and hear about some of the things you've seen, some of your research, and different ways we can, we can increase yields in, in soybeans across the Corn Belt. So, so I figure I'd start, you know, just to, to get the conversation rolling. You know, I, I kind of mentioned the, the seven wonders of, of corn yield. So in, from your perspective, before we dig into... Uh, each individual management practice that growers may have with soybeans. What, what are, in, in your thoughts, and, and maybe start from the, the most important to the least important, what, 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 should, what should growers really be looking at when it comes to soybean management? Well, I think obviously the first thing they would need to be looking at genetics. And, you know, it sounds like it's boring, but, you know, if you don't start with any late high-yielding variety, then you know, you're, you're starting from right from the bag of not being able to maximize yield potential on that, you know, per acre of land. So, and then when you look at that, then, then pairing that genetics with obviously the herbicide trait technologies we have out there because they're, you know, they're, they're within those traits. And every year we go through and we look at the trait platforms and last year we really don't see any differences between the, you know, the extend, extend max or extend plus uh, platform and the E3 platform. So what that does is it gives growers flexibility. Yep. Whatever platform you want to run, there's high yielding varieties that on average yield the same. So you just go pick the platform you want to use and really dig in and dive. And the challenge I think with genetics and variety selection now is the seed industry turns over so much quicker than it used to. And again, a lot of that is driven by weed resistance and just how the breeding cycles that uh, industry is in right now. Yep. But 10 years ago, I would have a variety, you know, my variety turnover would be probably 50, not even like only 40% of my varieties would turn over from year one to year two. Now I'm probably only have, now I probably have an 80% turnover, hmm. you know, so that 80% of the varieties I test this year will be gone next year. That's how quickly that, that it's going. So it's really changed how farmers need to look at variety selection. And what I really try to strive farmers is, you know, I love that farmers doing on-farm trials. It's great, but that just gives you how well that variety, that cultivar performed on that field last year, okay? You need to be looking outside your county, outside your state, wherever those genetics are being grown and looking how it performs. And that's what you're looking for, stable variety over environments. So that's the one that I look at. You know, a simple one also that's that, you know, I think farmers are really starting to dig into is, is early planting dates. That's free yield. That doesn't cost a farmer anything. And yep. roughly what I try and encourage farmers to do is get out, start planting their soybeans seven to 10 days before they start planting their corn. Yep. Is really what we're doing is we're, and we've been fortunate enough, we've been working with um, the, the RMA. So at the end of November, there will be new um, crop insurance dates for the entire country. So the, what looks like we're, and I can't really, I don't know what they're going to do. I've seen preliminary maps, but for most of the country, they're going to be backing that up a little bit. So I think that's going to allow farmers then to reduce the risk of early planting because you have that crop insurance coverage on, on to, to pair with it. Yeah. Um, that, that's something I've, I've really noticed here in, in Iowa, Sean, you know, with, with the last two well last three years you know we, we've really been pushing guys to to get some soybeans out before their corn because you know you, you can you can increase your rate in, in soybeans pretty easily and then, and then lose 40 to sixty thousand plants per acre depending on the conditions and and you know the soybean plant will compensate much more than the corn than, than a corn plant and you know with, with seed treatments nowadays i think that's 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 really helped uh you know make growers feel better about what they're doing early but but again, going back to the, you know final stand, that's that's something that if 
when if the weather's good, April fifth, depending on where you are, and you know you don't know what the next two weeks are going to bring. I, I think uh, I think we feel a lot better about getting soybean plants out there and, and losing some uh, th than we do corn. Yeah, the cost of today's varieties versus varieties thirty years ago is the yield penalty for a reduced stand is half of what it used to be. So mm -hmm. I am when when farmers are out there planting early. I tell them don't touch that stand unless it's under 50,000 pints per acre. It's not oh. economical to do anything. That's, um, you know, at that point, you really need to focus on getting a residual herbicide in there to control water hemp because it's going to take another week to 10 days for that 50,000 plants to canopy, but they will canopy. Yep. Uh, we've done some time lapse photos that kind of <clears throat> shown that. And what, what, breeders unintendedly have done is they put three times the yield on those branches that used to be there. So that's where, why the yield penalty is cut in half. There's so much more yield put on those branches than there were 30 years ago. It's pretty, so it's pretty incredible that, uh, you know, most people balk when I say that 50,000, but you know, I've got farmers that they'll, they'll try it and well, I'll leave a pass. I'll leave one pass and I'll test it. And more times than not, I'm, I'm right. And <laughs> I like to say I'm right. Well, it's, it's funny. I, so I'm the salesman in the room, right? And I, I, every year I'm, I'm given a bigger and bigger goal. And every year the university and my agronomist tells my farmers <laughs> to cut their rates. So you guys aren't exactly my best friends here. But it's interesting because we continually do it. Uh, I started uh, selling seed in, you know, 09, 2010 timeframe. And, and in central Iowa, we were still planting a lot of 180, 190,000. And, you know, that number's come down considerably to the point where we're planting some original passes at 120, even, even some a little bit lower than that. And it's funny because, you know, it's like dragging a cart uphill. You know, you, you, you talk these guys into, hey, let's drop 10, 15, 20,000 plants. Maybe we reinvest that that money into a seed treatment or, or some other component. And it's always funny because the first year it might yield just as good or it might meet their expectation in the next year. It's like, you got to start the whole conversation over, you know, and, and convince them to do it again. But, um, so we've got genetic genetics, trait tech, early planting. Um, what else when you think about your wonders of soy? Well, I don't want to get trade infringement from Belo, so I'm not going to talk about the. <laughs> but he might actually sue me, so we'll do something here. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I know Fred Belo pretty well. Um, then obviously the next, and I, they're not really super in order because they're kind of clouded here. But soil fertility, having a, a strong soil fertility base, is, is critical. Yep. I think when we get to these high input costs, that's the first thing I think farmers want to cut. There are their soil fertility rates, and I think you know soil fertility. But mainly, um, potassium is the biggest driver of this. You know, phosphorus has some extent. We can talk about some sulfur and other things later on. But you know, maintaining that soil K level is critical for most farmers. Obviously, you get North Dakota, parts of Minnesota, IDC is an issue. Yep. But that's that's the that's the big one. Yeah, and it puts it's perspective. So, you know, uh -huh. And to put in perspective, when we were talking about 100 bushel soybeans needing 500 pounds of nitrogen, they, they need about 150 pounds of, of K. So, yeah, you look at a, about a 1 to 1.5, you know, in terms of needs. Um, yeah, you, you definitely need a lot of potash out there. So, I, you know, I want to just comment quick on that 500. So that's actually some old numbers. What's well, um, good to know. Let's, let's hear the new stuff. So about... Five years ago, I had a graduate student, and he, this would be the only person who would ever do this much work. Uh, <laughs> Typical I would have never student, done huh? this. Yeah, he was really good. And I'll give him a shout out. His name is Adam Gaspar. Really, yep. good, really good, hard worker. And what uh, he Adam, did is he's he, with Corteva now, right? He's yep. running their biological advancement program. Is he that still? I think he's a seed treatment lead okay. or biological lead for Corteva. So, yep. yeah, he's really, he's really good. I like Adam a lot. And we went through and redid all of this work on nutrient uptake and partitioning. And, yep. and right now what we see is a 100 bush soybean crop will use 375 pounds. 375. So that number dropped. And the reason for it 
is and that's Stover in seed, right? Stover and seed. Yep. yep. If you if you just pull the seed off, it's three thirty, and that's mainly as protein. You know, be coming off as protein content. Yep. But the older varieties where that five hundred came from um, was related to nitrogen use efficiencies. Okay. So at those back when those numbers came out, that soybean plant would take up that number, but only would use say 70% of that uptake and utilize it in seed. In these high yield environments with today's modern genetics were up to close to 90% nitrogen use efficient, nitrogen harvest index. Yep. What that means is 90% of the nitrogen that plant takes up goes right into that seed. It basically strips all that nitrogen or 90% out of that stover. And that's why if you start looking at like UW-Madison's sole fertility recommendations, we no longer give a nitrogen credit. Yep. We give a rotational credit. And so then, so when farmers, you know, some of the older farmers would think, well, if I'm getting like a 90 bushel beans, I should have a 90 pound nitrogen credit, right? No, because all of that, that nitrogen that came up was stripped out of that stover and left that field in, as grain. So that's, that's I, I'm really glad you went there because it, it feels like that's something that gets mentioned all the time, right, is, is what should we assume for a credit. So this is getting probably to the backside of the conversation just around practical application of the knowledge. So you, you listed a 90% efficiency rate. So then would you give that rotation credit roughly 10% of your bushel or are you giving it a fixed number year over year right now we're just basically giving it a fixed number uh, i think we i think this this is an area that could be more refined there's not a lot of work done in this area but right now it's depends on if it's sand silt or clay that number changes um obviously on sand it's less yep. because of some of the, the leaching but it's anywhere from you know 10 to 30 pounds of credit is all we're given on these high so, so that's just something to think about yeah, yeah. So, so with that too, uh, I've heard I've heard discussion, you know, adjusting that. But I've also heard uh, the impact on the carbon and nitrogen ratio w with Stover, you know, just with residue in general. Yep. So, so you're finding you're actually still getting a credit versus just less less nitrogen tie up because of less residue. So the the credit is more. It's it's a rotational credit because you have soybeans in the rotation. So versus a continuous corn. Yep. It's a rotational mm -hmm. credit. So for because you're reducing the disease background, so it's not really a nitrogen credit. We don't even think of it as a nitrogen credit. We just think of it as the bump you get when you plant put soybeans in the rotation versus continuous corn. Yeah. that's the way we think. Less less need essentially at the end of the day, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. More more yield correlated yep. than yep than physiology related. Yep. Um, well, so so as, as we dig into. Um, some, some of this discussion, you know, we're, we're kind of talking about nitrogen right now. Um, you know, we get a lot of guys that, that feel like they're plateaued or, or stuck in this 60 to 75 bushel range. You know, here in Iowa, depending on where you go, you know, central Iowa, especially if, you, if you're rotating, you know, you're kind of stuck in that 55 bushel. If, if you're in, you know, towards the east and the west, a little bit hillier, more roll, better drainage, you know, it's, it's pretty consistent to get 65 to 70 bushel beans on rotated ground. And, you know, to, to up that, obviously, continuous corn, uh, you know, four to five year continuous corn, we see higher yields. But, but guys still feel like they're, they're plateaued. Is, have you done research to look at if and when there is a response to a, a later nitrogen application to, to, you know, surpass that plateau? Guys kind of feel like they're stuck at? Yeah, it's a good question. So we're going to have a project going, like some historical work we've done first and an ongoing project. So historically, we went through and gleaned the lit literature, and we came up with like I don't know, I can't remember the number. Let's say 225 experiments related to adding nitrogen to soybeans. All right, so we did kind of a synthesis analysis, and we found that the addition of nitrogen to soybeans only accounts for one percent of the yield variability. In English, what does that mean? I tell farmers, if you figure out the other 99% of yield variability, <laughs> then, then you can start playing with nitrogen. <laughs> so but what we found is where we did, 
most consistent response to adding nitrogen is in irrigated systems where you have a high planting, like you've increased your seeding rate. So you're dropping 180,000 seeds per acre in an irrigated system. That's where we saw the most consistent response, and it was economical to adding nitrogen into the system. Um, now, go ahead if you want to ask. No, 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 go ahead. That. Sorry. So now what we're doing is we have a big multi-state project in um, Ignacio Ciampaniti. I just butchered his name. He's from K-State. <laughs> yep, heard, yep. Um, he is, um, what we're doing is we're looking at the role of biological end fixation in today's modern genetics and can BNF meet the needs of today's modern genetics and yield potential or do we need to add additional sulfur or nitrogen into that system. So that's what we're really focusing in now is just looking at where we get these 90 bushel beans, can biological end fixation coupled with uh, what's going on with the soils, natural release of nitrogen, mm -hmm. um, you know, mineralization, can that meet those needs? Or what we're really trying to do is model when and where we need to add additional end. That's the role of this. So just, I'll just say we're ongoing to try and make it more site and environmental specific. Well, so let's, so let's kind of, so nitrogen and fertility and soybeans, you got 88 million acres of soybeans and we have trend line yields. If you were going to talk to the average grower and say, focus first on X, what would you have them focus first on? So we, we obviously talked about genetics. Let's assume, let's assume we're buying good genetics. Uh, we talked about, you know, a, a parity level in these trait techs. So set the, set the chem battle aside um, yep. after planting date, because that's, you know, that's a comfort level thing. So when we get into that soil fertility conversation, or maybe, maybe include any one of one, two, three, or four, but if, if you were to say, I'm, I'm the average guy. I feel like I'm just hitting trend line yields. How do I improve my yield um, today? I would say really focus on that soil fertility. Okay. Um, I think that's, I mean, if you look, again, there's a lot of other things going on here, but if you look at who wins a yield contest every year, it's, probably, it's guys, farmers, I don't want to say just guys, people, they would, if you look at their soil fertility levels and these and these yield contest winter fields, they're off the charts. Yeah, you know? that env environmentally sound or safe? That's I'm not going to talk about that right now. That's a different discussion. Mm -hmm. But just in my own variety trials, when I go out there, <clears throat> I pull soil samples and I uh, look at where we're getting high yields. It's always those high K testing fields, and I think that's one of the things again that all of this machine learning and all this precision ag will allow us to do is I have a uh, former PhD student looking at resetting what those critical K levels are. Um, are those critical K levels? Because remember how those were built 30, remember these were built 30, 40, 50 years ago, yeah, these initial yep. base yep. K levels. Genetics are different, yield levels are different. Um, can we go through and just do a better job of developing these critical K levels because, again, those were built on responses. So it's the probability of a response is how those K critical K levels were initially built. Yeah. You, you bring up a, with the cost. Go ahead. I was say, you, you bring up a really good point, and, and it kind of reminds me of a lot of the conversations I have with corn growers. You know, you, you look at some of the recommendations and, and just overall practices and, and fertilizer rates that guys have been putting on for the last 20 to 30 years, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're kind of set in their ways, right? And, and as we increase our genetic yield potential, some of those, some of those practices and, and numbers need to, need to change, right? And so as we get into the, you know, I remember 10 years ago, we, we would see 225 bushel corn and guys were super excited. Mm -hmm. now, now they expect 275, 250 bushel, maybe 300, depending on where you're at. And when I look at soil analysis and, and yields, you know, when, when you make that jump from 225 to 275 bushel, there's, there's some differences in, in some micros and, and other macros start to jump out a little bit more. So as you talk about increasing the potash needs in, in higher yielding soybeans, do any other micro or macronutrients stick out to you as far as, you know, being a, a, a limiting factor? Yeah, I think if... 
the next shoe to drop, I had to guess, would be sulfur. I think that's one area that we really, we just finished a big sulfur study and it's, you know, we, we're still, you look at the sulfur deposition map and you can get access to that. Um, that, I mean, there are still regions in the United States where we're still getting enough sulfur deposition to supply needs. However, there are other areas of the United States that aren't. And then you stick living in Wisconsin <laughs> where you're pulling off alfalfa, 40 tons of corn silage a year. You know, we're just having so much removal. And obviously we're having putting manure back on that ground. So we're having some addition of manure. But I, I, I think it's just critical to pay attention. And also these soil fertility tests for a lot of these micros and these secondaries are not the most accurate. I think we all, we don't, that's kind of one of those things we don't talk about. Yep, they're, yep. Not super, they're not super accurate, depending on which soil, um, you know, what soil fertility test you're doing. And then on the whole micro end, it's all dependent on the calibration for when those tissue samples are taken. And what, what I mean by that is like, if you look at the UW, UW recommendations, all the, so the tissue sufficiency levels are based on pulling leaf tissues or the trifoliates at R1 soybean, okay? So that's a key thing that farmers need to understand is which lab are they doing, take, sending their tissue samples to, and do they have calibrations for R3 soybeans? Because mm -hmm. at R1 soybeans, that soybean plant is only taking up 10% of its biomass, okay? Yeah. So you start going into R3 soybeans or pulling tissue samples at R5, you've got 80, 90% of the biomass. If you have a dilution effect, how, how accurate are those tissue samples? And that's a question I always want to you know, push back on farmers. And if you are going to do tissue testing and you are going to try these micronutrient foliar feeds, you have to understand when, were the, when, was that, when was it calibrated for what growth stage and so that's a key point. Yeah, the weather definitely impacts that too, right? Whether you're, it's right. yeah. So yeah, tissue samples can be de definitely kind of tricky. Can uh, we? Yep. Can we on the on the potash and sulfur conversation? Can we? Is it a fair question to ask? Ideal number, and let's just throw out an eighty bushel target or eighty five bushel target if we think kind of high end of of our growing regions. Can you offer your minimum acceptable number or optimum number your your recommendation to growers sure, i'd have to do my quick calculations i don't have that off the top of my head but we have a calculator on my website okay. that you can just dump it in it's very similar you know well almost these calculators are relatively similar that you can get a, a pretty good idea on what you Back to the, I, th I can't remember if it was Sean or Andrew brought up the point of all this corn biomass. Corn yields coming off, you know, we used to be doing 225, now we're at 275. Well, what percentage of farmers put all the fertility out in front of the corn? Yep. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good good point, Sean, because a lot of growers will do like a two-year fertilizer application, yep. enough for their corn and soybeans, and, and yeah, that's, that's definitely something that uh, happens quite a bit. Uh, website coolbean.info is that where we can yep. find those those calculators we'll, yep. we'll talk a little bit more about the website at the end of the end of the episode but and i didn't mean to interrupt on the on the micro no, conversation i just um it, i think it's important that you know our goal is to really challenge our listeners take this information go home apply it to your farm ask legitimate questions if if you're bumping up against the ceiling was that environmental or was it it's something that we could control yeah you you mentioned application and i I apologize. I'm a bad host. I'm jotting notes faster than I'm thinking about leading questions here. But um, uh, so let's talk application then. And Andrew just mentioned a lot of times we spread fertilizer once for two years. Uh, give me your thoughts on that. If, if I said I want to take soybean yields really seriously, give me your thoughts on kind of timing of application of, of potash and sulfur. Sure. So I think obviously it depends on the form and, and its availability. Um, I, and again, I understand in, in Wisconsin, it's probably 50-50. Half the farmers put it all out in front of corn, and half of them split it. <clears throat> yep. uh, the only point I always want to remind them, if you 
if you plan for 225 bushel corn and you get 275 bushel corn, you need to go back out there and put out some more nutrients for that soybean crop. I understand soybeans have got a history of being a really good scrounger of nutrients and it, and it, it is, it's very efficient at that. But, you know, we also don't want to short that crop. Yeah. Because when you short that crop, there's a lot of research out there showing the relationship between low fertility levels and increased disease incidence, um, increased insect incidence. When we used to have soybean aphids every year, where did the soybean aphids pop up first? In low K fields. So yeah. not only were you shorten your field, shorten your yields with low K, you're also having to make at least one, if not two passes of uh, an insecticide to control soybean aphids because of that relationship. So it's all, of, there's a lot of dynamics going on with, you know, having low soil fertility levels and the implication it has for pest management. Because mm. then you have crappy stands, so you're going to have more weed competition. You're going to have more disease incidents. So it's, it's not just thinking about X and plus Y equals Z. It's all one big mass of interactions. Yeah. And that's one of the things, again, I go back to this work with this algorithms and this machine learning stuff. When you can run, you get data from all these different fields and you can run millions of scenarios that you can never, you can never have a budget to do that kind of on-farm research. Right. No, yep. Nobody has that much money yeah. to be able to do that. Or the time, right? I mean, <laughs> or the, the computer can run yeah. 24 hours a day. Um, yeah. Let's let's talk about seed treatments. We've talked about early planting, the importance mm -hmm. that early planting and population plays. So I guess I don't even know if I have a question. If I say seed treatments to Sean Conley, what's your what's your response? Give us your thirty thousand foot view on seed treatments. Sure. So I get in a lot of trouble for my seed treatment stance. Um, so Here's my 30,000 foot view on seed treatments. If you are planting early, I think of, you know, a, a seed, a, a fungicide seed treatment makes sense because that seed is going to be sitting in the soil, depending on the soil temperature for 14 to 25, 28 days. And it's, it's just going to have these pathogens just working on it because yep. it's just not going to pop. So if you're planting early, a uh, fungicide seed treatment makes a lot of sense. And also if you're planting early, you're probably gonna, and if you have SCN and SDS, there's some. There's a couple good products out there that are labeled for SCN and S, SDS protection. Those, to me, those are the no brainers. Yep. All right. Now, the whole thing about neonicotinoids is what really gets me in trouble with, with industry. And that's fine. I, I, I've got big boy pants on and I can take it. <laughs> So where I see neonicotinoids work is if we're in these um, cover crop situations, mm -hmm. I think that's where, and what we're really trying to push farmers with, you know, um, climate smart farming, we're really trying to push farmers into maximizing the carbon. Um, so you're no-tilling, you want to be putting cover crops out there to maintain the soil. In those situations, that's where I see the neonics pay. Yep. I, I don't think we need to see them on every acre. I think the data kind of supports it. I understand why farmers do it. It's totally a CYA um, insurance reason. I don't I don't always understand it, but I get I get that. But well, I'll tell you what, Sean. To, to make you feel a little bit better, and I also have my big boy pants on, I'm, I agree with you 100%. Early season, you need, you need a fungicide, right? Um, early or late, there are just a lot of situations where we just don't need the, um, you know, the, the pest control, you know, so that, so that uh, insecticide just isn't as important. Uh, around here, I think it's more important, you know, we get a lot of cattle manure spread. There can be some situations yep. there where, where it's needed. But, you know, the, the biggest thing that, that people talk about is the bean leaf beetle, right, around here. And the, the, the populations just aren't as, as high as they yep. used to be. So, so the need for that um, insecticide, uh, especially in soybeans, more so than corn, just because, you know, again, the soybean plant can compensate. We have maybe some different pests, although there are some similar. 
we that that neo that neonic and, and just general insecticide isn't as needed as it used to be so so let me i, I want to make it no go ahead sean go first no i was just going to go follow back with this, the um the sea corn maggot issue this is where it's really important for farmers to understand what seed treatment they have purchased and what's on that seed treatment because a lot of times they will just say it's whatever They'll just I say just insecticide, bought, general insecticide, right? Yeah, those, oh, I, I just got the full load. Well, what the heck? I got, I got the I full load. I almost said something. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Right, put, <laughs> put it all on there, baby. Well, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, so I'm a huge advocate of seed treatment, and I think what you're talking about is something that the industry, frankly, needs to to really put a heavy emphasis on. You know, we went through kind of the generic boom, uh, and I think we're coming out of that a little bit, but, but there's a ton of that that's really you know, that's really frustrating to me is you have, you have especially price sensitive growers that will kind of highlight, well, you know, so-and-so will treat my seed for, you know, X number of dollars. And you go, are you really aware of what you're putting on? You know, we would never do that with our sprayer, right? We'd never just mix up a bunch of random stuff in our sprayer and not know what it is and go spray it on the field. But the industry's kind of allowed that to happen on seed treatment. I think it does a disservice to the high, the separation from high quality to low quality products that are out there. So I, I didn't mean to necessarily interrupt, but I get passionate about that because it's you get that. Yeah, I got the full load, and it was four dollars <laughs> and fifty cents, and it's like, well, I'd like to see the rates and the and the you know the ingredients, but yeah, and I, I guarantee you, if that was an insecticide and at that four dollars fifty rates, what it would be would be a generic that would not control sea corn maggot. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so when we talk talk about that's why it's important to know. You know, you need to have, you know, a second elite seed treatment insecticide. And I'm not going to get brand names here because yep, I don't yep. want to get too much trouble. But, you <laughs> well, know, no, that's, there's, yep, well, no, totally agree with you. you use, yeah, use glothianidin or thiamethoxam if you're going after seed, uh, seed corn maggot. One of those two. Yeah. So when when you talk about those, those two active ingredients, mm -hmm. this is probably a really unfair question because it's too complicated. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, you know, percent of time that those are, are relevant, but that's probably almost impossible because that's going to get down to a farm practice level, kind of like you said, cover cropping and manure and, and, and other challenges. We we saw uh, some seed corn maggot last year on some, on some uh, particular fields. It was just devastating. You know, I'm still not sure it warranted a blanket dimethoxin on every acre, but certainly when they come in, it's, it's significant. So, yeah. So, so as we continue to talk about seed treatment, Sean, um, you know, soy, soybean inoculants has, has been a, a pretty heavy conversation, uh, especially with, with some of the growers I deal with. And, you know, I, I think looking at, you know, I remember 10, 15 years ago, the cost of soybean inoculant was, you know, you were 10 to $15 per acre. Now you can get it for four to five. And, and I think with the environmental conditions, you look at the survival rate of that bacteria in the soil. I think, you know, the, the price factor, but also the environmental factor, you know, drought, saturated soils impact that population. What, what's your thoughts on, in, on, on soybean inoculants? Sure, so probably when I first got to Wisconsin like 15 years ago, and I don't know if you're familiar with the history of inoculants in Wisconsin, but Wisconsin farmers love inoculants. I think it goes on every acre every year so uh, it's just kind of a history that we've we've had here so i've kind of really wanted to kind of dig into that and see you know what's the roi <clears throat> so we went into some flooded grounds we went in and we simulated some drought and neither flooding nor drought has any influence on that those the rhizobia in the soil that hmm. doesn't kill them it doesn't influence them at all hmm. so that, that's got to be somewhat that's got to be somewhat new that's good to know that you, when when yeah. was your research conducted? Is that something that's still going on? Well, I quit doing inoculant research because I could not predict anything. So, <laughs> we, but, so we went out, we actually built, you know, because using PCR, I can go out, pull soil samples. I, I can tell you exactly <clears throat> how many uh, rhizobia you have for 200 cc's of soil. Just try to, we're trying to develop like a critical threshold. Yep. And basically, there was no relationship between the, the, well, that's not true. If you have zero, there's obviously a relationship. Yep. But once you're, I'll get, once you have soybeans in the field like one or two years, and you have a base threshold of rhizobium present, there's no relationship between the population and the response. 
So unlike neonicotinoids where, you know, there are some challenges that in the marketplace, uh, what's the, and I'll steal this from Seth Nave. I like to give him credit where credit is due. He goes, what is the Hippocratic oak for a doctor? First, First do no harm. Do no harm. Yep. First do yep. no harm. Rhizobia, inoculants do no harm. There's <laughs> never, never seen them have water quality issues. You had indicated they're relatively expensive. I don't have a problem if farmers want to do it on every acre if a farmer doesn't want to do it. But if you're going into a field that's never seen soybeans, and I know there are not many, but a few of those, or if you're going into a field that has, um, you know, hasn't has seen soybeans for five years, eight years because of continuous corn, you have to go through, and I know farmers hate this, you need to go back and use the old-fashioned peat-based inoculants. You want to do a, you know, like a seed treatment, you know, coating, that's fine, but you got to use the peat-based because they're by far more effective. Okay. And it sucks. Farmers don't want to do it because you're going to get all black and dirty and it slows you down, but you, you got to do it. Otherwise, you're going to have a failure. Hmm. So, so we learned, so I, I guess I learned, you know, I, I was stuck in the old way of, of learning that the, the drought in saturated soils impacted that population. That, that's good to learn that. Um, but you're still, you still find it uh, beneficial if, if you've been continuous corn for five years or above. And that's, and as long as you use this peat-based inoculant, that's where you're yep. seeing the, the increase in ROI. Or because just, the, yep, because of all the seed treatments on, because if you're putting, you know, a live, live bacteria... Yep. On a seed that's coated with a seed treatment, obviously there's been a lot of work looking at efficacy and how long they those they will survive. It's just the rhizobia live a lot longer on that peat, and um, <clears throat> so yeah, that's, that's an automatic. And farmers, whenever they don't do it, they see a product fit. I shouldn't say always because that gets you in trouble when you say always. <laughs> but generally, when I see product. When I see problems surrounding this, it's because they did not have that peat-based inoculant in addition to whatever brand you want to put on the seed. Hmm. Yeah, that's good to know. Good to know. Let's talk. Um, we got to be conscientious of time here. We've, we, we talked a little bit about rate, but let's talk about um, let's talk about three things and I don't think we have to take a long time talking about them. So recommended rate range, variable rate, and then, mm. uh, and then finish on row spacing. Awesome. Yeah. I can see this. <laughs> I can see this in 30 seconds or less. <laughs> Perfect. Okay? For soybean, for soybean seeding rate, buy a bag and acre. A bag and on acre. Your, on your good, on your good dirt, drop 120. On the headlands and your lower marginal parts of the field, drop 160 to 170. Awesome. Soybean you... seeding rate is the exact opposite of corn. Okay, good. That's... Hey, I like this guy. This is the first guy that's ever encouraged <laughs> the number to go up, at least on some part of the field. I appreciate that. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, so what, what are you seeing? That... Comes down to, that's good. Information... The marginal go ahead. Of... Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say no, that's it perfect down. information. To, we, want, we want higher soybean rates on, on the bad ground. So I was going to ask what, what you're seeing that, that leads you to, to show that or to see that. It, it, it all comes down to getting a canopy quicker to minimize water loss. Because usually in those poorer areas, that's where your sandier, rocky knolls where you're so the quicker you get a canopy, you can hold some of that moisture in, so you're you're not losing it. Is and obviously weed control is part of it too in those marginal areas. So that's what I tell farmers: you can just quickly get a map, look at your map, look at the knolls, write a prescription in five minutes, and then let it rip. You don't have to put a lot of thought into it. So then that leads into variable rate. How how much success have you had with variable rate? I mean, you're 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 talking about variable rate there. Do you see it going past that? We did. So I don't know if you all remember, maybe graduated with Ethan Schmidt. He was a grad student of mine. Uh, he went to Iowa State, and he came over here. And he did a bunch of variable rate work. Um, Emma Matcham was a PhD 
student of mine, she did a bunch of variable rate work at Ohio State. And I think on the soybean side, we're just overthinking it. I think if you just do a pretty simple, I mean, obviously corn, there's a bigger cost <clears throat> investment with corn seed. Uh, stand is more of uh, critical because you don't have the phenotypic plasticity that you do with soybeans. Nope. So just don't overthink soybeans. 120 in the good dirt, 170 in the bad dirt. Quick and dirty map and let it rip. Don't even think about it. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, row, sp not row spacing, row width. I guess row spacing. Row spacing, quick and dirty. If you're planting in April, I don't care what row spacing you're doing. Okay. As you, the later you are 30-inch row beans planted in April 10th, will perform just as good as 15s, just as good as 20s, just as good as drilled. Once you get past that, you know, May 10th, and I'm just throwing out an arbitrary dates here. Yeah. But once you get, once the later into May you get, the narrower you have to put the, that row spacing. Just because of the effect of no count, um, you're, you're just going to minimize the no number. Uh, so you have to, to, to do that and also increase your seeding rate. So that's kind of the two things. So the later you plant, narrow the rows, increase the seeding rate. Uh, in the intro, I, I've got to ask one more question. This one's kind of for me. I apologize. I can keep you all day, and and I'm sorry. Thoughts on uh, biostimulants and soybeans? It is a very good question. That's my answer. No, <laughs> that puts it in perspective. I, I love it. I love it. Well, we can we can leave it at that. Uh, Sean, as we get to the end of our show, we, we always wrap with a segment we call A Penny for Your Thoughts. Andrew Penny is our agronomist. Andrew, give us three succinct takeaways, and Sean, certainly chime in if, uh, if there's something you'd like to add. Boy, this, this of all the episodes we've done, I, I, I can tell you this is the one that I've taken the most notes on. You know, I'm, I'm glad we had you on here, Sean. You brought up a lot of new research and some new numbers for me. You know, uh, looking back at some of the numbers I've used, it sounds like they were a little bit out of date. And some of your research has, has maybe, you know, brought some, shed some light on to, to, to soybean growth and development and yield potential. So I, I think the number one takeaway, you know, what stood out to me, um, you know, we, we oftentimes we talk about early soybean planted. Uh, soybeans and the you know the risk of frost you know you mentioned that 50k that that's kind of where if you're thinking about replants if if you're 50k or above just leave it that's we get that every year so that that really stood out uh, number two I think this what, what really stood out to me is the the new nitrogen requirements uh, as well as potash that soybeans have you know you mentioned roughly 90% of N taken up goes into the seed so as, as we continue breeding, it sounds like soybeans are becoming more efficient at using that nitrogen and putting it into the seed. Um, and then I think what really stood out is just, you know, the, the conversation. There was actually four points I'm going to bring up. One, soil fertility. Maintain those potash levels, right? You know, depending on, on your corn, if you're doing a one-year or two-year fertilizer application, depending on corn yields, you know, just keep that potash level up. If, if, you have, if you're on two-year rotation and your, your corn yields are high, you're going to need to go in with, with, with some additional potash. And then what, what stood out now, that, that final point, you know, this is the first time I've had four main points. If you're going out early April, 30 or 20 inch rows, it, it doesn't sound like there's a big difference in yield potential or, or yields. If you get into that May, you know, mid, mid, maybe early, depending on where you're at, that May planting date, the, the narrow rows become more important just because of canopy closure. So I, I love the conversation today, Sean. Like I said, I learned a lot, so uh, it, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Anything to add to those points, Sean? No, I mean, I, I always tell people I can tell the same story in five minutes or five hours to explain how I want to listen to me. So I, I would love just a quick 30 sec. There was so much information. I feel like listeners would really love for you to sum up, hey, I'm that guy that wants to increase my yields, right? What, what should I do? What are the four quick points? Let me, yeah, and let me, let me interject because I feel like I just got hit by a two by four as I was listening to Andrew and go, we didn't touch on a really critical topic, in-season fungicide. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a huge topic of conversation. Allison Robertson um, spent time with us talking about tar spot. It's, it seems like it's used both for yield and for um, disease protection. Give us your, your thoughts on uh, in-season fungicide application. Sure. So it's interesting when you look at that. So the further south you go and the later you plant, 
the bigger response you get from a foliar fungicide. The further so south I mean and the later you yep. plant, okay? You would have thought that if you plant early and you have a late material group bean out there, that's where you would get a response. But we were able to do from that data where we had like 8,000 farm fields and 600,000 acres of data, we were able to parse out those farmers. So about that were in the same region that did foliar fungicides and didn't and did comparisons and agronomics to management and all this stuff. It's when you plant later, like when we're getting into mid-May plantings, and if you're like south of Wisconsin, you know, like mid, mid-Iowa, mid I guess that would be... Isn't you know, everything south of Wisconsin? <laughs> 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 A lot of things are, except, except for North Dakota. Except for Canada. So, yeah. <laughs> So those are the two responses. And then I think the biggest point, and I think Allison probably talked about this, or the plant pathologists are hammering on it. If you are going to do it, use a multiple mode of action product because of the re resistance that uh, Carl Bradley's lab is picking up across the north central region with frog eye leaf spot. Yep. So okay. you got to use, don't go out there with a cheap headline because it, it might fail. I guess I shouldn't use trade names, but a generic, yep. you know, strolly. Um, because it's likely already the frog guys are likely already resistant to it. You're not going to um, save anything, or you're going to increase resistance. Yeah. So use a multiple mode of action. Yeah, I, and I appreciate your agnostic nature, and we're not we're not opposed to talking at least not from our perspective on on particular brands. We just don't really come to the show with the intention of of you know really propping one up. We talked about in our corn podcast specifically with Tarspot, the high triazoles, so the the Maravis Neo, the Veltima, the Delaro complete products. Um, and and in Tarspot specifically, Allison and Andrew were talking about that triazole being so important to, you know, for the for the leaf control. Um, yeah, so and I apologize for kind of clunkily tacking <laughs> no, that, that onto the end. But let's let's kind of let's kind of wrap uh, Sean, your your kind of three or four takeaways for the for the producer that wants to see their yields go up. Um, echo Andrew's comments and and feel free to add to them. So yeah, invest in elite high yielding genetics. Plant seven to ten days earlier than you start planting corn. Um, have a strong soil fertility program, and we didn't even touch on weed control. So yeah, that's uh, it. make that's... sure. We Make sure you have season-long weed control, and you're going to have to have, um, you know, st start clean, stay clean. Yep. I know that's some in somebody's mantra, but you got you to do that. Yep, yep. We had an excellent um, podcast with, uh, with Matt Nelson. I think it was episode three or four. Um, and Matt did just a really, really nice job of, of explaining the importance of that. And so uh, we could probably go on all day. But, but <laughs> for a really good reference on kind of that concept, um, visit that uh, podcast with Matt Nelson. Um, Sean. I would say before we leave, I think you were going to bring it up too. We we got to talk about Sean's website. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Sean, kind of, um, we always ask our guests to kind of talk about how to connect with you, and you've got you've got a, a, a really great website with a ton of resources. Tell us a little bit about CoolBean.info. Sure. So um, my website is www.CoolBean.info. Um, everything I do as a research project, then we get translated into an extension publication so nothing sits behind a paywall farmers can get access because the checkoff dollars farmer checkoff dollars fund anywhere from 80 to 90 percent of my research program in a given year so i want to make sure the research i our team works on gets back to the growers so everything is posted there and follow me on twitter my twitter handle is at badger bean and whenever i post an article i put it on my website and i tweet it out with a link so i'm easy to easy to follow and just just holler at me yeah sean really appreciate your time today uh would like to actually um invite you back uh sometime in the probably relatively near future we're going to kind of do an esg or regenerative ag conversation it'd be fun to get your perspective of how that ties into uh the soybean side of the rotation andrew tell us about our uh topic and guests next week 
Yeah, so I think next week we're going to switch it up. So with with harvest going strong uh, across most of the corn belt, I think we're gonna we're gonna reach out. We got a number of growers we've contacted that are uh, kind of leaders in their you know the the farming community in the, in those uh, states. So I think we're going to reach out and have a, a quick you know five to seven minute conversation with the growers to to hear how the environment's impacted uh, them throughout the summer and then how their yields are doing. Yeah, looking forward to it, Andrew. Thank you, Sean. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you guys joining us today. Thank you. Have a good day, everybody.